The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. If you could please turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And we're going to start uh, with some verses that we left off with last week in verse 7. Uh, a couple other places you can earmark in your Bibles right now, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 3. We're going to be going over a number of scriptures, and all of these are, are important, um, but they will be on the screens. They're on your outlines. We'll be going to a number of places. If you didn't get an opportunity, you can pick up an outline by the doors, and there's, uh, don't be intimidated by it. There are some things that you can fill in on there, but I'll explain. I will give you all the answers. There will not be a test at the end. Uh, but let's look at Mark chapter 6, verse 7. It says, And Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus' ministry has begun to multiply as he sends out two by two servants of his with the same power and authority that he has to do the works that he has already begun to do. And this gets the attention of those in authority. It says in verse 14, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, this is what comes to his mind. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. This morning, as we continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark, we come to, in my opinion, one of the darkest passages in the New Testament. And it's dark because what we're going to see is this faithful servant of the Lord, this humble and passionate servant of God who is senselessly and needlessly killed. And and in this passage, the reason it sits so heavily in my mind is we can look at the crucifixion at the darkest day in human history. and, And at the very least, we can say that has redemption. That has a rising from the grave, an empty tomb, an Easter to look forward to. But when we consider this, the death of John, there's no silver lining. There's no, there's no making anything good out of this. There's no emptying of the grave, simply the death of a servant of God at the hands of a, a brutal ruler. So I've called this message greatness, gravity, and grace because as we study this passage this morning, what we're going to see is, is an example of what it means to be truly great in God's eyes, what it means to be truly great in the kingdom of God. And then we're going to see the gravity of sin and how darkness and sin enter in and and counteract the work of God, work against the work of God, this utter darkness that comes in. And we're going to be left with this sense for each one of us, what do we do about this? What do we do with the sin that's in this world that makes this world so brutal? What do we do with the sin that's in our own hearts? And, And as we always do, I'm going to turn your attention and your mind back to the grace of God in Christ Jesus available to you. But first, I want to consider greatness. Greatness. I wonder, apart from Jesus Christ, if I were to ask you this without you being at church this morning and and you knowing what the subject matter of this, this sermon is, if I were to ask you who is the greatest person who's ever lived, who comes to mind? Other than Jesus. Other than Jesus, who comes to mind? Alexander the Great. Okay. 
you don't have to answer. It's somewhat rhetorical. I want you to think about it. But here's the thing. I, I don't know who comes to your mind. Maybe it's Michael Jordan or maybe it's, uh, it's Mother Teresa or maybe in our American context we say it's Martin Luther King Jr. or it's Abraham Lincoln or, or these other people that come to mind who are truly great. And it makes me wonder, what if we could ask Jesus what he thinks? What if we could ask Jesus, in your opinion, Jesus, who's the greatest person that ever lived? And we have the answer, actually. This is what's so cool about Scripture is, is we get these answers. He says this in Matthew eleven eleven. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Interesting, right? According to Jesus, John is the greatest person ever born. Because I don't know if you know this, but all people are born of women. And he says there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, other than himself, of course. And that should cause us to pause and consider, what is it that made John great? There's a lot of Johns in Scripture. There's, there's the John the Apostle, one of the disciples of Jesus, who wrote for us the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Revelation. There's John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. But this is the John that Jesus is talking about, John the Baptizer. He's not, he's not Baptist. He's not part of the Baptist denomination, but he's called both the Baptist and the Baptizer. And here is an example in Jesus' eyes of the greatest person that ever lived. So let's Look at his life. And let's look at what made him great. In Mark chapter 6, we're going to read about the end of his life, and it is not great. It's not great. It's, it's actually horrifying. But before we get there, I, I want to look back at what made this man's life great. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of Luke and the Christmas story. And you'll, you'll remember this, if you remember that story, that his birth is pretty extraordinary. He's got these parents Zechariah, who's a small-town minister, essentially, in the synagogue. He's a, a humble, simple man, faithfully serving his local congregation and lovingly devoted to his wife, Elizabeth. And God loves this couple. And in, in Luke chapter 1, we see them described as both blameless and devoted. Blameless and devoted. Quite the accolades here. And they love God, and they love the people they minister to, but they're also desperate to have a child for themselves. And they're getting older and older, and it's not happening. And, and it, it, some of you know this pain. Some of you know this struggle too well. And it's, it's really, really difficult. And yet what they continue to do is they continue to serve faithfully. We don't get any sense in this passage in Luke chapter 1 that, that they're rejecting the Lord, that they're angry at God, that they're, they're telling him it needs to be different because look at my faithfulness, look at what I've done. No, they continue to serve and they continue to pray and they continue to wait and something miraculous happens as their will is aligned with God and he answers them. He sends them he sends this angel, Gabriel, to declare that their prayers have been heard. Luke chapter 1, verse 13, this describes the son that they're going to have. Gabriel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. But he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. I, I don't know how that works. I don't know what that looks like, but that is incredible. And then it says this, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This has been my prayer for my own son since he was in the womb, that he would be a man like this. 
And so John is born. He's, he's full of the Spirit. He's full of passion. He's devoted, set aside, consecrated for the Lord and appointed to be a preacher and a prophet. And he is exactly that, a mighty man of God. Remember, though, that just around this time when John is born, Elizabeth's relative Mary, she gives birth to a baby boy as well named what? Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, this is just a, a wonder to me as we consider John the Baptist. He is actually Jesus' cousin. He's a relative of Jesus. They're born just months apart. And no doubt in, in their lifetime, they had time to, to interact when they lived in the same region after Mary and Joseph returned with Jesus from, from Egypt. And here John actually in his early life in ministry bursts onto the scene long before Jesus preaching with power and proclaiming that the Messiah is coming. Now prior to John, there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. God had not been, been speaking in the same way that he had in the past. It was as if God was silent. And then here in Luke chapter 3, here comes John boldly, courageously, with power, preaching the word, baptizing people, telling them to get ready because Jesus is coming and, and, and the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's not going to baptize with water. He's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. So you better get ready. And people are responding to him in droves. And, and what's amazing to me is that this John, he's not an ordinary man. He's not the kind of, of preacher with cool clothes and nice sneakers and, and, and a gold chain around his neck. No, he's not that kind of, of guy. Picture him with me. John is this eccentric wild man, dirty, unshaven. He's, he's living in the woods. He's, he's wearing this homemade garment made out of rough camel hair. His meals are pretty weird. He's picking crickets and honey out of his teeth. Basically, he's your typical homeschooler. And uh, <laughs> I can say that. I was homeschooled, okay? I know what I dress like. <laughs> But despite all of these eccentricities and his, his strange lifestyle, people are just drawn to him in massive crowds. I, I think about this. This is amazing to me. Like it, Some of you have a hard time coming to church when you have air conditioning and coffee and nice seats to sit in. But John is such an effective preacher of the word that people are coming out into the wilderness, into the hot desert, away from any resources to listen to this wild man preach the word. What must that have been like? John is something special. And what he's doing is he's giving some people something they desperately need. He's giving them a, a path to forgiveness of sins. And he's pointing them to a hope of redemption and restoration. And people know they need it. And they're coming to him in waves. And he says the Messiah is coming. He's coming soon. Be ready. He's coming. And, and from John's perspective, he's coming with fire. He's coming conquering. Make things right before God, before he comes before it's too late. So what made John great? Well, we see actually in John chapter three, before John is placed in prison, which he will be soon by Herod, he and Jesus are both at the same river. And we get a glimpse into why Jesus calls John great. They're at the same river, and they're actually both baptizing people in the river. Jesus with his disciples, John with his. And John, in the Gospel of John, keeps directing people to Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He's like the hype man for Jesus. Look, there he is. There he is. And John, who's built this big ministry, who has all these crowds coming to him, the, the, to the preacher that's very appealing to our flesh, to our attitude, to our ego. It's very appealing for crowds to be coming to us. And yet see what he does. He sends the crowds to Jesus. He pushes them to Jesus. He, goes, he says, go over to Jesus. And some of his close followers, the people that have been following John for a long time, listening to his preaching, he's like their pastor and prophet. They ask him about this. They're like, how do you feel about your cousin over there? Suddenly drawing all the crowds while your crowd is shrinking. How do you feel about that? And here's what he says in John 3, 27. John answered. He says, a 
and, and this is for us. Like, we need to have this mind ourselves. He says, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, he's like, I'm the best man. That's all I am, here to serve. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's whole life has built to this point. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, John simply testifies, it's not about me. It's not about me. And he immediately begins to exalt his cousin because he knows who he is. And he begins pushing people to Jesus as Jesus begins preaching to the crowd. And he tells everyone that Jesus is above all. And he tells everyone that by believing in him, you can have eternal life. I want to read this to you from the Gospel of John, and this is going to be really important to us. At the end of this conversation, as the crowds are going to him, he says something preemptively about Jesus' life and ministry that he could only know by by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says in, in verse 36 of John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, I don't know if the, the gospel writer John is, is quoting directly there John the Baptist, but it's in this context uh, of introducing us to John the Baptist and his ministry and the way that he's directing people to Jesus that we see this. If you turn to Jesus Christ, you can receive life. And if you ignore what he has to say, what awaits us because of our sin, our sin, our responsibility is the wrath of a just God. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's not about John. Do you want to be great? Do you want to live a life of greatness? I think all of us would answer yes to that question, and if not, then there may be some cowardice within us, but if we really want to live a life of greatness, this is what it's about. It's not about me. It's not about you. You might write that down. That might be the most important thing you walk away from today is it's not about me. It's all about Jesus. John didn't live for credit. He lived for Christ. He didn't live for material things. He lived to magnify God. He didn't live to fulfill his vision for his life. No, he lived to fulfill God's calling on his life. So then as John's disciples begin to depart, Jesus can't help but stop to reflect with gratitude on what John has done. And he says this, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he says, all these crowds that were going to see John, what did you go out to see? Why did you go into the wilderness? What did you go out to see? Why did you go out into the middle of nowhere? What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No. What did you then go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. This is true greatness. What we see in John is that he's not a pushover. He's not a a reed bent by the wind. He's not trying to constantly come up with the nuanced answer to fit into the political climate, to say the right thing. He is bold, he is passionate, and yet he's humble. He's not soft 
He's not weak. He's not afraid. He's bold for the sake of God's kingdom. Yet ultimately, he is full of hum- humility. And this is why Christ exalts him as one of the greatest, the greatest man ever born. I tell you, among those born of woman, women, there's none greater than John. True greatness. And this is the call to us. This is how we live a life of greatness. It's bold. It's passionate. It's not filled with fear. It's living all out for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, and yet at the same time, humble, submitted. It's not about me. You see, John, ultimately, he loses his ministry. People stop following him. He insults the wrong people, gets thrown in prison, and he will eventually be beheaded for his faithful commitment to God. Does that sound like success or legacy or achievement? And yet, John, for John, his life was fulfilled. John lived big. He didn't live for himself. He yielded to his father. John's life was a life like Jesus. Big, bold, passionate, impactful, and yet humble, selfless, willing to suffer, willing to even die for the glory of God and the good of others. This is what it means to live a great life, to live a Trinitarian life. It's a life modeled on Jesus. It's a life that looks like the life of Jesus. It's a life empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it's a life yielded to the Father's will. But as we read on in Mark chapter 6, this is what a great life looks like. But what we're going to see is, is that the fire of John's life gets needlessly snuffed out because of sin and because of the sin of an evil man. So we've seen first the greatness, and now we look at the gravity of sin. John's ministry has increased. He's this dynamic preacher. He's, he's not concerned about rubbing people the wrong way or ruffling feathers. In fact, people need to hear it. And they're responding to these call-outs. They're responding to the conviction of sin in their life by being baptized and repenting. But he makes the wrong people mad. He insults the ruler of the land, the ruler of the region of Galilee where he is, Herod. And it says in verse 17 of Mark 6, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, I just want to put this in some context. I hope I don't belabor this for you, but if you could fire up the map, I just want to tell you who Herod is. Because there's a lot of Herods in Scripture. There's, there's Herod Antipas, there's Herod the Great, there's, there's Herod Agrippa, there's Herod Philip, there's Herod Archelaus. Um, and so I don't know what that thing is on the map in front of you, but let me explain what's going on here. That kingdom right there is the kingdom of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, ironically named, was... Uh, a colonial ruler from Rome, essentially, to govern over this region. He's called an ethnarch because he's king of the Jews. He's, he's king over an ethnic group of people. And so this whole entire region was his. This is the Herod who was in power when Jesus was born. This is the Herod, you'll remember, who, when he hears a threat of a, a new king of the Jews being born, a baby, in Bethlehem, he sends out his soldiers to kill the children of that village. Herod is known as Herod the Great because he was a great builder. If we look at the, the Temple Mount and this, this amazing place that was built, that was because of, of Herod's bringing of, of wealth and commerce and city building and all these things and planning into Israel. So, so he has this, this power and this greatness, but he's also known for paranoia. He's known for being a, a brutal leader. He's known for all kinds of immorality. Herod had, I believe it was nine wives. I didn't say nine lives. He's not a cat. He had nine wives, and he had about 40 children to those nine wives. And this Herod... Um, it was a, a said of Herod that it was better to be Herod's dog than his 
son. Because many of Herod's sons um, struck him with, with paranoia about them wanting to, to take his power, take his seat, and so he had a number of his sons killed. This is the kind of person he was. He, at one point, had his favorite wife killed and his mother-in-law killed because he thought that they would take over his kingdom. Five days before his own death, as he's getting ready to hand over the kingdom to his son, Antipater, he decides that Antipater's a little too eager to take over his kingdom, so Herod then has him killed. And so in the wake of his life, Herod dies, and he leaves the kingdom as a mess with a bunch of different copies of his will all over the place, and, and he leaves this kingdom to eventually three sons and his sister. It gets divided up four ways. So you can see kind of the, the division there, and it's divided into these tetrarchies. So one of his sons, Herod Philip, takes that region up in the north, Trachonitis, that, that whole area. One of his sons, Archelaus, is put in charge of Judea in the south, Jerusalem, most of Israel, essentially, all of Samaria, and he's given a lot of power. And another son, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, which is who we're talking about in the passage today, is given that region near Galilee and that, that region east of the Jordan. Okay, so following this, his sister's given a bunch of beach houses along the coast, so that's how it's divided four ways. Tetrarchs. Tetrarch sounds like a cool name. I know it does, but what it actually literally means is quarter king which sounds more like a cheeseburger than a ruler, in my opinion. But here's the thing about the sons of Herod. He dies, he leaves the kingdom to his sons in this mess, and Mary and Joseph, who have fled with their baby Jesus to Egypt to get away from this guy, they come back, and what Scripture tells us is that when they come back into Judea and hear that Archelaus is in charge, they can't stay there because he's worse than his father. On one particular Sabbath, he's responsible for killing 3,000 worshipers in Jerusalem. He is a brutal leader himself. So they go up to Galilee, to the region of Herod Antipas, where they think, at least, that it will be more safe for them. And it is, for a while. For a while. But as Jesus' ministry grows, this Herod Antipas begins to increasingly resemble his ruthless, violent family. And he begins to increasingly live this life of blatant immorality. This guy has some, some serious issues. And so you may recall from the Gospels that he's married in this political union, but he decides to divorce his wife. And here's, here's the situation going on here. He divorces his wife so that he can marry a woman named Herodias. Does that name sound familiar? Sounds an awful lot like him. The only problem is with this marriage is that she's already married to his half-brother. And even worse, she's the daughter of another half-brother. Sounds like a mess, doesn't it? So now if he marries her, she will be his wife and his niece and his sister-in-law. And if they have kids, she will be their mother, their aunt, and their cousin. <laughs> I know this, this sounds like a bad joke, but this is actually how I feel when I'm describing my own family to people. It's, <laughs> it's all over the place. But we can see how immoral and absurd this individual is. We can see how, how he's, he's full of problems. And he compounds his problems, he adds to his problems by living this, this life of violence and paranoia towards those who would oppose him. And, and here comes John onto the scene. And John is preaching, and Herod's curious, and Herod's showing up in the wilderness to hear this guy because everyone is. It's the place to be. And yet, here John is preaching, and he calls out Herod and his wife Herodias and their immorality. And he says, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. And so what does Herod do? He throws John into prison. Mark 6, 19 then says, Herodias had a grudge against him, no kidding, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. 
For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This is fascinating to me. Herod listens to John preach, and he knows he's good. He knows he's righteous. He knows he has something interesting to say. And here Herod is listening to him, and it says he heard him gladly and was perplexed by him. Some of you are like that. You've come to church, and you've been maybe coming to church for a while. You've been listening to the Word of God, and it's just kind of interesting to you. You're intrigued by it. You're maybe perplexed by it. There's parts of it that you don't understand, parts of it that are a challenge to you. But like Herod, you have never submitted yourself to the Word of God. You've never determined that, that Jesus is to be Lord of your life. You're here just for some kind of intellectual stimulation. And, and I, would, I would appeal to you this morning, do not miss this opportunity to respond to the word of God. We're going to see in Herod someone who, who does not, who does not repent, who does not turn, and in fact doubles down on the life that he's living and compounds his evil. But we have an opportunity to not do that, to not miss our opportunity to respond to the Lord. If you're here this morning, you're here for a reason, and I hope it's not just that you hear something interesting to you. I hope that your life is changed. Herod's life is not changed. He hears Herod gladly, but then he imprisons him indefinitely, and then he compounds his evil this way. It says in verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. This is a giant party full of a bunch of men. Not a good start. For when Herodias' daughter, his niece, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. Don't have any misinformed notions that this is like a Jane Austen dinner party where they're all waltzing and she's taking turns waltzing with the gentleman. No, this is not what's going on here. This is a, a, a dark scene, a, a hedonistic party full of, of lust, drunkenness, foolishness, catcalls, you name it. This is, this is the depth of, of immorality. The kind of environment that, that maybe some of you have found yourselves in, God forbid, in which the dulling of our senses combines with the pressures of the crowd around us, the people that we're with, and it leads to this darkness of this Herod objectifying his near relative. And amid all the excitement, amid the frenzy of essentially this, this bachelor party, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, there's a warning for each of us in this passage. There's a type of environment we can be in. There's a type of, of company that we can keep that will pave the way for us to make horrifying decisions. To do things that will absolutely wreck our lives. And Herod is, is about to do exactly that. I think when we see this passage and, and we see... Well, the situation he's in. Is this the intention he had when the night began? Is this how he saw things going? I doubt it. But I wonder how he got here. And we ought to wonder the same for ourselves. I, th I think it's, it's easy to look around at the wreckage of a, a broken marriage or a dishonest business decision or a crippling addiction and, and, and think to ourselves that it all just came to a crash all at once. Like it was all going smoothly and then it just suddenly fell off a cliff and that's not how life works. That's not how sin works. Rather, it's day after day, compromise after compromise, decision after decision, until you reach this unthinkable hour. Herod didn't wake up one morning after a moral life and decide, today's the day I want to do something completely horrific. No, 
No, we don't either. We make decisions, incremental decisions, if we're not careful, if we, if we don't live in repentance towards the Lord, if we, if we don't check ourselves, if we're not in, in fellowship and accountability where people can steer us back to the right path, where day after day, small compromises and, drift, and drifts in our life lead us to an eventual place that we would have previously thought unthinkable. And we wonder to ourselves, how did I end up here? A little more flirtation, a little more compromise, a little more secrecy. And the day eventually comes in which, which our enemy, the devil, presents this distorted view to, of the world to us, to our flesh. And we say, I want that. And we take it. And we silence the voice of conscience. We silence the voice of the Holy Spirit who is calling out to us, no, you know better. And despite that, we give in. We give in. We neglect the voice of scripture, the pull of the spirit. We silence God's leading. And, and I hope that this is not the case for you, but Herod here in the pressure of the moment is about to make a decision that will haunt him for the rest of his life. Verse 23, he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And listen to this response. It says, the king was exceedingly sorry. He doesn't even want to do this. He hates what he's about to do. But the conviction doesn't last. And it gives way to the moment, to the carousing, to the lust, to the godlessness of the moment. And it says, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head to the party. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, that is John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is a, a senseless and horrifying end to a humble, great life. And after this event, no doubt Herod did his best to silence the voice of conscience, to numb himself from what he had done, to, to move away from it, to leave it in the rearview mirror uh, with time and distance and drink and pleasure and shoving what he had done into the recesses of his mind. But now the rumors have spread. There is a preacher in Galilee. There is a healer. There is someone who is casting out demons. There is someone who is speaking with authority. Someone who resembles John. And as Jesus' ministry is spreading, though, though Herod has done everything to suppress what he's done, it's as if a secret closet in his mind has suddenly sprung open and he is overwhelmed with fear at the thought that John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. The same thing happens to us. We live these lives where we try to, to distance ourselves from some of the things we've done, the actions we've taken, the, the thoughts that we've had, the wrong that we've perpetrated. And we do well most of the time to suppress these things, to cover, to hide, to, to bury these things in busyness, lifetime, and distance, but, but not forever. And so there's a call here to be careful what kind of choices and memories we store, to be careful what kind of decisions we make like a, like a 
lake in a drought receding to reveal buried crimes long since hidden. We all have these hibernating thoughts, faults, failings ready to reemerge. And the question facing us this morning is what do we do with those? What do we do with those? There's really two groups of people here this morning. There's those that are, are not yet in Christ, who don't know Jesus as their Savior, who have one response to make here today. And, and for the rest of us, as these thoughts, these guilt, the shame reemerges into our minds, it comes in afresh. There's also a response for us who are already in Christ. And as we conclude, that's what I, I want to, to leave you with. Long after all the dinner guests have gone in the privacy of his chambers, Herod knows what he's done. He knows. John, whom I beheaded, he's owning it. And he's faced with the ugly possibility that there is a God and that God is just and he fears. I think for many of this, us, and this is actually kind of a universal response, there's in those glimpses of our life when we grasp the depth of our own depravity, our own rebellion against God, we can't just sit there in the temporal in the moment. It causes us to think eternally and to wonder, are there consequences to my actions? Is there a God? Is there, is there justice in this universe? And if we don't know how to relate correctly to God, we are left with nothing but fear. Nothing but fear. Yet think about what Herod fears. Jesus. Jesus, gentle and lowly. Jesus, full of grace towards so many. Jesus, full of, of tenderness and compassion. Jesus, who offers forgiveness to people who clearly don't deserve it. Jesus, who offers a way of redemption and repentance and restoration for even Herod. Jesus is the object of Herod's fear. When you don't understand what Jesus has done for you, when you don't understand why he came, this is the only response. What can you feel other than fear when you realize that there is a God and yet you don't grasp the fact that he offers you forgiveness? This is what Herod doesn't realize that there is another way, that we don't have to live our lives haunted by the things that we've done because Jesus has paid for every failing. That, that's the gospel. The gospel is this, that you are worse than you could possibly imagine. That even our righteous deeds are done for nothing more than, than people pleasing and hiding and protecting us and are tainted on some level with sin. We are worse than we know. And yet, we are more loved than you could possibly imagine. This is the grace of God towards us. Jesus was stripped, mocked, beaten, scorned, crucified, subjected to open shame and humiliation so that we don't have to be. Out of love for us, he came to die for those that are wicked. We all know John 3, 16, but what it says after that is, is so important. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus perhaps today is the day that you realize you need him, that you are not righteous in your own strength, that, that knowing what you've done is as the Spirit of God brings conviction into you uh, this morning, you realize that you need grace. And if that's you, don't miss this. Don't miss this opportunity this morning to respond to the grace of God because what we see in this passage is that this conviction for Herod passes. This feeling of regret for what he's done passes. And in a few months, Jesus will stand before him face to face and Herod will essentially co-sign the crucifixion of our Christ. Don't let the moment pass. Don't be like Herod. 
Realize this, his grace, the grace of God is enough for every failing. No matter what you've done, no matter what comes to mind, as you think about uh, these waves of conviction, these hidden secret things in our lives, Jesus has paid it all. He has done enough for you. So if you don't know him, if you don't know him, what my appeal to you is, is to respond to him. To realize you need grace and to acknowledge that need of him and to receive the free gift of salvation that he has paid for through his death on the cross. If you do know him and you already know Jesus and and you find yourself in this position of being hit with these waves of conviction and, and guilt, honestly, and shame, there's also a response for you. I don't know if you as a believer, and I'm gonna conclude with this, but I don't know if you as a believer have ever had this experience, but you're alone with your thoughts, just like Herod is, and and you realize the depth of maybe something you've done, something you've done in the past, maybe many things you've done in the past, and you think to yourself, I thought I was forgiven. Why do I still feel ashamed? Why do I still feel this weight? Why do I still feel this pain? Anyone ever had that experience? You don't have to raise your hand. But these these quiet moments in which these thoughts rush in and you have the same sense of fear, what if people found out about this? And the question for us as believers is, is what do we do with these thoughts? I'll tell you this, you need to know something. Your sins, every single one of them has already been forgiven entirely. You are washed and made new in Christ. There may be some things that come to your mind that that you may need to confess, that you you may need to turn over to the Lord in confession so that you can receive the, the reminder of his limitless forgiveness towards you. To confess before God, maybe even to confess to a trusted friend. But what scripture tells us is is that when these, these these feelings of shame and guilt and condemnation come for sins already forgiven, that that is an attack of the enemy. Scripture reminds us in Ephesians 6 to put on the helmet of our salvation. The helmet of our salvation. And what that means to me is that it is our salvation that protects us from the condemnation of these thoughts that come. And, and here's what this looks like for me practically. When I'm, when I'm before the Lord and, and I, I sense this condemnation, Mark, you're not good enough. Mark, Mark, these things that you've done are too much. Mark, the sin in your life is too great. It cannot be overcome. Mark, think about this stuff. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. I recognize that for what it is, a lie and a deception from the enemy of God, from Satan himself, that would seek to, to tell me that my salvation was invalid. And the helmet of salvation reminds me that no, no, no. Through Christ, through what he's done, I am made new. Through Christ, I'm given new life. Through Christ, every sin is forgiven and I'm washed clean. I look to the cross and I see every single one of my sins nailed there. That's what Jesus has done for you. And I remind myself of the truth of God's word and I remind myself uh, of the implications of that and I store the word of God in my, in my heart and mind to respond to those lies and accusations. And I store even the words of, of songs and hymns in my mind to respond. I love this, this hymn. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what he's bought you through his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. You're set free. Live in that freedom. Live a life of greatness for the glory of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, I thank you that even the darkest of our deeds 
is not too much to be overcome by your blood and your forgiveness and your grace. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that, that does not yet know you, that, that, that is now confronted with the weight of their life, that they would turn to you and receive the free gift of, of salvation. And Lord, I pray for each one of us that is already in you as, as we're maybe struggling with things past done. I pray we would lay those things at the foot of the cross and receive the truth of our forgiveness in you. And Lord, I pray that we would live lives that are great. Lives that are, are full of passion and zeal and, and fervor for your kingdom, Lord, and yet that are marked by humility, grace, and understanding, full of mercy, Lord. Let us live lives that reflect you. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name.